Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Matthew Everhard here. Thanks for checking into my YouTube channel. Hey, we have a great opportunity today to have sort of an interfaith dialogue, I suppose we could say, between Presbyterianism, uh, yours truly, obviously, and Dr. Jordan Cooper, here, who is here with us today to talk a little bit about Lutheranism. You probably already know who he is. I take it from the response that I got on Twitter when I posted the possibility of this discussion that many of you already either follow him or know who he is. Uh, but let me give you a brief introduction to Jordan Cooper, and then we'll say hi to him in just a moment here. He is a Lutheran minister, and he is a person who wears a number of hats. He is uh, an ordained minister who serves currently, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Dr. Cooper, as the president of the American Lutheran Theological Seminary. You still hold that role? I do, Yes. And yes, he is an author. He's got a number of books. We're going to talk about a couple of them today. Um, you probably know him, though, for his Justin Sinner podcast, which I think is maybe the thing that he's most well known for. You can listen to Justin Sinner both on an audio version of the podcast as well as on his YouTube channel. And Justin Sinner is also doing a number of publications, too, which we're also going to, to talk about as well. So, Dr. Cooper, thank you so much for being on the channel today. How are you doing, sir? Yeah, thanks. It's good to be here. I'm doing well. Doing well. Happy to be here. Yeah, I noticed you uh, You dressed up for the occasion. You always dress like that. You walk around the house like that all the time? I do. I do. I. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I dress up pretty much all the time. I mean, I don't wear a tie every day, but uh, I regularly wear a tie. And if not, I pretty much always have a jacket on. Um, but, but also, if I'm on video and I don't wear a jacket, everybody comments. So, so I feel like now, now I've, uh, I have an obligation to do it for my viewers at this point. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think, I think you definitely do. And the viewer will notice that I'm a little snazzied up today too. I don't normally wear a jacket when I sit here in the office and or make videos, but today I'm dressed up for the sake of our, of our guest here. And I, Hey, I do have to say this too, about, uh, the tease that I put on Twitter about the beard competition and a lot of people, Jordan, if I can, I call you Jordan or would you rather Dr. Yeah, Cooper? no, that's the, yeah, yeah, yes, please call okay. me Jordan. That's fine. <laughs> uh, you know, I teased about yeah. this whole, who's got the better beard thing and people really got on, onto that. And I got to tell you, man, everybody <laughs> found in your favor. And I think that um, the problem here is people forget about the categories of beardliness. It's kind of mm -hmm. like a diamond, you know, it's, there's not just one thing, but it's cut in clarity and quality and you obviously have the girth there today. You've you've outbearded me as far as length, but don't forget that there's also the the coloration here, which I obviously have much more of, and then the the quality, the lines, and the fade in. So I think it's a little closer than uh, than some of the audience <laughs> may have suggested earlier. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think there's more than length. I it's another thing I get comments on is when I trim my beard. People always comment, "No, don't trim your beard." <laughs> No, I, I think having a beard that looks neat and nice is is good. Uh, I think it's more than just the the length, because you could kind of grow it out as long as you want and look kind of crazy if you That's don't take right. care of it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's all of a piece. Now, tell us a little bit about your background here, because I'm interested in your your work as both a minister and as a seminary professor. Are you teaching or administrating the seminary? Give us a little bit about what you're doing at uh, at American Lutheran Theological Seminary. Yeah, yeah. So I can give you a, a, my general role. So my my time is really split uh, in terms of my full-time work, because I also do some college ministry on the side, and that's kind of a thing I do, uh, you know, a volunteer thing that I do because I really enjoy it. But um, so my time is divided between Justin Center, which is the podcast and publishing house, and um, and we do some seminars as well. 
and then with the the seminary. So uh, my work with the seminary, I am the president. Uh, I've been in that position for about two years. Um, I was I was doing full time campus ministry until COVID mm -hmm. uh, at Cornell University. So I, I still do campus ministry at Cornell University, but not full time. Um, and, and that ministry basically shut down because campus shut down and uh, it, it just became very difficult. At least I stayed connected to, to some extent, but not not in a full time capacity. So um, it was after that that I moved into doing Justice Center as a as a job and I moved into um, the, the seminary position. Now I've been teaching at the seminary for a while. We have an online seminary program, um, that was basically designed for, um, second career pastors, you know, people who were, were in a job really wanted to go to seminary, um, because of life circumstances, you know, couldn't, couldn't move their family, um, to one of the Concordia seminaries in, in Fort Wayne, Indiana, or, or St. Louis, Missouri. Um, and so we, this started as kind of an alternate route for people in those circumstances. The program just really grew. Uh, and, uh, it, it got to the point where we decided to move forward in the accreditation process. Um, so that's largely my role now. It's not my only role with the seminary, but as president, I, um, I speak with potential students regularly. I'm constantly on zoom calls and on the phone. Um, uh, you know, I do advertising for the seminary, um, and represent the seminary at different events. Um, but also I am uh, heading up our moving through the accreditation process. Uh, so we just actually had our first in-person meeting with the accreditation agency that we're working with uh, last week in St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, so it's a, if anybody's in ed education, <laughs> higher education, they know how uh, rigorous and lengthy that, that process is. So uh, it, it takes a good amount of time. Um, but yeah, I, I've really enjoyed the seminary work. I also teach our doctrine courses. So I'm not just doing administrative things. I'm also um, teaching. I teach uh, Doctrine 1, Doctrine 2, uh, Lutheran Confessions 1, Lutheran Confessions 2. And then sometimes I'll fill in for some other courses as well. Now, these are online courses. Or are you teaching in person as of yet? Does it, it, So it does actually have in-person meetings or no? We have, this is a complete online MDiv program. Okay. Yeah, so we and we do have some, you know, times to get together in person. We have conferences and then we're uh, this summer we are launching an in-person intensive course for our MDiv students because we're trying to get them together more more than once a year mm -hmm. um, if, if we can. But this is designed to be a complete MDiv program online. Uh, we do everything through Zoom. So and we've been doing that for a while. Uh, I think everybody does things on Zoom these days, but uh, mm -hmm. we we try to replicate the classroom experience as much as we possibly can. Um, I, I think, you know, looking at, and I think schools have gotten better with, with online stuff at this point, um, but we really want to have that kind of interaction, teacher-student interaction that you have in an in-person program. So our online program is not just, you know, you're not just like watching lectures and writing on them on your own. Uh, I mean, you're you're in a Zoom classroom. So uh, there, there is a we try to do a lot of back and forth as much as we can. Now, am I right in thinking that this is a, denom a denominationally oriented seminary or what kind of students would come would come here? Was it mostly Lutheran, exclusively Lutheran? And if so, um, tell us a little bit about the Lutheran alphabet soup of different branches within Lutheranism. Yeah, sure. It can get a little confusing. I mean, just like Presbyterians too, or yeah. I guess any group can get you get a little complicated once once you start getting into the you know alphabet soup there. Um, so we are associated with the American Association of Lutheran Churches, 
Um, so it is a it is a denominational school. Uh, the American Association of Lutheran Churches is in we are in full fellowship with the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Um, we are part of a, a larger body called the ILC, the International Lutheran Conferences, which kind of identifies all of those Lutheran church bodies throughout the world that have a shared confession of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, so so we are small. We have less than 70 congregations at this point. Um, but we are we are also part of a much larger fellowship of, of churches beyond just us. Um, and in terms of uh, seminary students, we don't you know, it's not only. Uh, students in our denomination, that the primary reason we exist is to train pastors for the AALC. But uh, beyond that, we certainly have students from various other theological traditions. Mm-hmm. So so we we certainly welcome students from other perspectives. Um, obviously, our teaching is coming from our, our own denominational perspective. So we're going to be teaching as confessional Lutherans, but but uh, people are welcome to take courses that, that are not. And we actually have some um, we have a, a Master of Arts in Theology program that was specifically designed for people who are not necessarily Lutherans and not looking mm-hmm. into, okay. um, you know, a Lutheran pastorate. So that was kind of designed largely for uh, people who, you know, say are pastors in churches where there is no, you know, higher education required, mm-hmm. um, such as like, uh, you know, some people in South America, for example. Right. Um, right. And, and I say I say South America because. Uh, they have the same time zone so they can make our courses live yeah. a lot easier. Yeah. That's <laughs> awesome. Others can. Uh, we, we have a student in Wales right now and, and that's kind of difficult for him. But uh, um, so, so the AALC though, just to give you a very brief overview of where, of where we come from. Um, we are essentially the remnants of what was the ALC, the American Lutheran church. Mm-hmm. Um, so when the ELCA formed and the ELCA is the largest Lutheran church body in America, uh, it is a very liberal church body. It's the equivalent mm-hmm. of the PCUSA for Presbyterian mm-hmm. listeners. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they, they have some kind of official agreement with the PCUSA. And, and that merger occurred in the 1980s. It, that when the ELCA was formed, it was a merger of basically three Lutheran church bodies that came together. The Lutheran Church in America, uh, the American Lutheran Church, and then another church that broke off from the Missouri Synod, which was the I think it was the the American Evangelical Lutheran Church, I think is the name. It's hard to keep them all straight. But but there were a number of churches in what was the American Lutheran Church that didn't want to be part of that merger um, because of the fact that the church body was not taking a strong stance on the inerrancy of Scripture. Mm -hmm. And um, these churches uh, saw what was coming. And, And I think as you kind of look at the state of the ELCA now, it's pretty obvious that they were right. So uh, they said, look, we don't want to be part of this merger. Uh, and they really wanted to just remain the ALC. They legally couldn't keep the name ALC. So they stuck an extra A in front of the name. So they became the AALC. So that, those are our roots. Okay. Um, and, and then it was in the early, like, I'm forgetting the exact year, 2000s, where we officially declared fellowship with the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Um, yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, let's come back to your... Um kind of your personal history and maybe even a little bit of your testimony in just a moment. For anyone who may be tuning in for the first time, just want to say welcome. My name is Matthew Everhart. I'm the pastor of Gospel Fellowship PCA. We are a reformed Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh here in Western Pennsylvania. Love for you to come check us out in real life at some point, Gospel Fellowship PCA. want to mention, too, uh, my new book is called Souls, How Jesus Saves Sinners. It's out on paperback and on Audible. So if you like to listen to stuff while you drive or while you run or while you wash the dishes, whatever you do, 
for the glory of God. You can get Souls, How Jesus Saves Sinners on Audible. And Jordan, I want to uh, pump up your book too. You have a number of books out available currently. I think, and correct me if I'm wrong here, your most recent book is called In Defense of the True, the Good, and the Beautiful. Is that your most recent book, or do you have something even sooner than that? That is my most recent book. Yes. Um, I And here's the I've got it right here. You can see it. Um, this, this was my most recent book. I am currently finishing up close to being finished with the book on the doctrine of God. Uh, and so this is a, I have a, a lengthy dogmatics project that I'm working on. I have two volumes in that. It's called the contemporary Protestant scholastic theology, um, which is largely drawing from the Protestant scholastic sources of the 17th century and kind of bringing some of the categories and ideas there into a, a modern context. Um, so my, uh, I've released a prolegomena volume, which was my dissertation, and then mm -hmm. I've released a volume on Union with Christ, which was really just me jumping way ahead in the series because I just really wanted to write on Union with you Christ. You wanted to be there. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that, that that's, yeah, I mean, that was kind of the highlight to me of the whole series. So, mm -hmm. uh, and maybe I should have saved it for later, but uh, now I've kind of gone back and now I'm doing volume two in the series, which is on Doctrine of God. So so that's what I'm working on right now. But uh, so it's, how many it's not volumes are going to come out eventually in that? Yeah, I guess what's projected is nine volumes. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. So it'll be a lengthy project when that's done. Um, no I kidding. Yeah, I expect this to be kind of a life project. Yeah. Um. So, I so, so I may release, probably will be releasing things between volumes like I did with that last book. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, so I expect this to, you know, take decades before the whole thing is done. And you, you never know, I may add more of, volumes uh, too. Give us a little bit of slice of in defense of the true, the good and the beautiful. You have a... A little tidbit you want to share about what that what that's about, what you're arguing for there? Yeah, sure. This, I guess, this book really, uh, the inspiration for this book was largely in my, um, my dealings with with college students because I do a lot of college ministry. As I said, I was doing that full time, and um, I just encountered a lot of students who were engaged in cultural conversations. Um, specifically surrounding Jordan Peterson, uh, mm -hmm. who I know we're probably going to mention at some point later too. Mm -hmm. uh, but he really had a big impact on a lot of young men, especially, and continues to. Um, and, and what I saw in college ministry was a lot of students that knew our culture was kind of a mess, but not necessarily being Christians themselves. And, and they, they started to have kind of an openness to Christian ideas. Some okay. of those I've seen, I've seen come to faith and get baptized. Um, so, the the real motive for this this book was kind of an apologetic motive. Um, what I'm basically doing is is tracing uh, philosophy from a loss of classical philosophy into the modern world and modern philosophy, um, and dealing specifically with the transcendentals, truth, truth, goodness, and beauty. So it's dealing with broader cultural issues, kind of where we've fallen from, uh, and then it it does engage in kind of what a Christian perspective and the Christian. Uh, view of these three transcendentals is. Uh, it, it's not a heavy-handed apologetics book. Um, I kind of wanted to write something that that would be uh, you know beneficial to the broader cultural conversation and kind of lead to maybe more more specifically apologetic uh, talks. So uh, for example, I'm going to be speaking on this book uh, at, at with the uh, Cornell Political Union. They've invited me to come give a lecture on this, mm. um, which is really really cool. It, it opens up some avenues I think I, I wouldn't have if I was just writing narrowly theological material. So um, th this was an attempt to kind of broaden out and discuss some broader cultural issues. Okay, that's great. 
Um, so here's what what's kind of interesting between me and you. I think that there's some parallel lines that that kind of overlap here in the sense that I am primarily a pastor. I am an adjunct professor at RPTS, the Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary in Pittsburgh. We both have YouTube channels, uh, so there's a lot of similarity. We both do some writing, some publishing, things like that. But one thing that's interesting is the kind of the tr- the opposite trajectories that you and I took theologically. So, for instance, I grew up as a Lutheran. I grew up in the ELCA, which you already identified as the most liberal yeah. branch of Lutheranism. And I was confirmed as a Lutheran. I was baptized prior to confirmation, obviously, as a Lutheran, and then found that to be somewhat dissatisfying. And I had a sort of a, a tremendous conversion experience at another congregation and really never looked back and never came back into Lutheranism. Yeah. So it has been years since I've been in a Lutheran church other than to look at it architecturally and just I kind of showed my kids where I grew up at one point. And then I came into Reformed theology by way of a study and conviction. But if I understand your testimony, you kind of went in the opposite direction. I'm not so sure about your childhood, but you were Reformed or Reformed-ish at one point before you came into Lutheranism. Could you? Am I, am I wrong on that? Can you tell me a little bit about your theological trajectory? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, I, I actually became a Lutheran uh, while I was in the Pittsburgh area uh, oh. at Geneva at Geneva College. So I'm very familiar with RPTS. I've been on campus there before and had a number of friends that went to RPTS. Um, so I, yeah, I, I was baptized actually in a PCUSA church in New Jersey, okay. uh, and that was a it was a conservative church. Um, they eventually left PCUSA, so they they were you know they held pretty strongly to the Westminster standards. Mm-hmm. Um, but my, that that was when I was you know I was an infant, and um, before my second birthday, my family moved to Massachusetts. So that's where I grew up. So I didn't grow up in that church. Okay. Um, at but my. My mom, my mother uh, converted through 10th Presbyterian when James Boyce was there. Yes. No kidding. Um, yeah. So, so very, uh, you know, connected to some, uh, to the PCA and, and that is really where I wanted to be um, for, for quite a while. Um, but there, there was no, you know, really reformed church in that area. So my family went to a, a covenant church for quite a while, uh, which has its roots in the Swedish pietist movement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was pretty young when we went there. Long story, uh, but the pastor ended up basically preaching from the pulpit that the miracles of Jesus didn't actually happen. Um, and uh, yeah, the, the the youth pastor had a picture of his wife naked that was painted by someone in the church and sent out to everybody. It was a very, very strange experience. These are my earliest childhood memories of church. It was very weird. Uh, Mm. So my family was left uh, after a lot of these strange things happened. And uh, this guy eventually left the uh, covenant church. I think he ended up in the UCC or something because they, uh, he was far, far to the left of, of where the covenant church was. But, um, but eventually then my parents were actually part of a church plant, which was an evangelical Presbyterian church plant in in Western Massachusetts. Yes. No kidding. Yep. That's the that's the denomination I was originally ordained in before I moved over to the PCA. Really? Yeah. Okay. What was it? The women's ordination issue that caused you to to leave the yes, EPC? That that is the the yeah. primary reason why I didn't want to remain in the EPC as a fellowship. Though I yeah. will say this: I I try not to bash them. I had a lot a lot of great relationships sure. there. 
They ordained me uh, many years of sweet ministry. It was that. And then I wanted to geographically be back closer to home. I had moved down to Florida for 11 years and it was just too far away from family. So when we moved back north to be closer to family, I also wanted to move one notch to the right and uh, realign with the PCA rather than the EPC. But yeah, that bothered me. That was a, that was an area of theological conviction for me that I thought the complementarian uh, position would be better than the egalitarianism that the EPC had. Yeah, because that's where I ended up as well. My um, my dad was an elder uh, at, at that church, and they were currently kind of having the debate. Um, they were having the debate over women in ministry, and he presented to the Presbytery on the issue uh, in um, in opposition to, to women's ordination. But mm-hmm. um, so I think at that point with the women in ministry issue, I was like, I don't think I want to be in the, the EPC because of that. That was a significant enough issue for me um, of, of conviction. And so... Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to, I was pursuing the PCA. That's, that's where, I mean, that kind of was the next, next, uh, most natural fit. Um, so I went to Geneva college to study theology there. Um, I was never ex- convinced of the exclusive psalmist argumentation. So I couldn't, I couldn't go RPCNA. I respect those guys a lot. And I have good friends that are, that are in the RPCNA, but, yep. um, Me too. uh, yeah, but I ended up, uh, you know, looking into the PCA. I, I kind of went back and forth between whether I wanted to pursue an MDiv or, do a PhD. I've kind of bounced back and forth between pastoral ministry and academics. I've, I've always wanted to do both. And I, f- I feel like at this point I kind of have done both. And, and mm-hmm. um, so uh, I, initially I was looking at the covenant seminary uh, and then some theological issues with some professors there made me reconsider that. And I was looking at Westminster Philly at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as, and as I was doing that, um, I, was confronted with some some theological issues that while I was in college that eventually led me into the Lutheran Church, um, and I'll try to summarize this because I could go on and on about this. But um, I'd say I say there are mainly kind of two things. One is um, I started reading Luther, okay, and a lot of Presbyterians like Luther, and Luther. I always had a lot of struggles with the issues of assurance. I mean, I honestly, they're, they're just, just existential struggles, questions of doubt, um, knowing the the nature of my sin, um, feeling a very profound understanding that I deserve God's wrath and punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have a very kind of Luther-like conscience, I guess. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, and, you know, I'm sure someone could psychoanalyze me and give me a reason for that. But, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but uh, that that is the reason why I think Luther really spoke to me when I started reading Luther, especially his Galatians commentary. Um, and, and that was a, a text that was just a real balm to my soul. You know, that, that, that text really led me to a place, I think, of peace with God. Uh, it, it, not that I didn't have peace with God, <laughs> but, a, but an existential understanding of what that really meant, you know. Um, so was it the whole of the commentary or was it mostly the introduction, which is sort of the most famous part of it? It was the whole thing. I, uh, I, I read it multiple times. Hmm. Um, I remember like falling asleep in college with that book next to me (laughs) in bed. Like Hmm. I just, I, 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 yeah, I know the introduction is very well known, but it was, it was really the whole text. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was, that was part of it. The, the other part was I was spending a lot of time reading the church fathers. Okay. Uh, and I think, you know, going to college with a lot of reform guys, it was, you know, every time we went to write 
like papers. We took a lot of the same classes. So we'd, we'd always be like, you know, trading books or whatever. Like, what are you writing your paper about? And uh, when we did subjects of, of, when we were looking at books, um, you know, to cite, my it was like my my roommates my friends were always citing like john owen or jonathan edwards or largely the, the puritan good authors. stuff there right yeah <laughs> and i know that's the stuff that you that you like of course i mean I, that's that's kind of your your obviously heritage theologically uh but for whatever reason i just wasn't drawn to their writings as much and, and i really was drawn to the church fathers okay and and i i can't say like there was some like profound theological reason why that was the case, mm-hmm. but, but for some reason they just, I found them more, you know, edifying. Um, so that's just kind of naturally where I went, you know, I'd, I'd go to Augustine and John Chrysostom probably more than anybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was like, yeah, I could look at, you know, something John Owen said about this passage in Matthew, but then I'd look at Augustine and, and that for whatever reason, just, just was more powerful to me. And yeah. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for whatever reason that was the case. And it was really my thinking through what the church father said about the sacraments and then reading Luther on the sacraments that they were the guys I was really steeped in. Okay. Uh, starting to rethink a lot of my um, just views on those issues. And then when you obviously started attending a Lutheran church, how did the whole aesthetic strike you in terms of worship services and uh, maybe a little bit more um, elaborate worship setting perhaps than in a, than in a uh, reformed, a little bit more of a simplistic worship service. Did you notice anything different there? I mean, it was very different, right? So at the time in college, I was attending, um, it was College Hill RPCNA, which is in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, right near the campus there. Um, and I know like uh, like Rich Gamble was preaching there for a while while I was there, who's I know a very well-known guy within the RPCNA. Yep. Um, so very strict, exclusive psalmists, group uh mm-hmm. so that was what i was doing weekly you know obviously when i was back home in massachusetts uh, it was an epc church that was a little more like kind of like an evangelical service sure. probably sure yeah um which i think is probably pretty typical of the epc very much so and so i went from that exclusive psalmist church to i checked out the missouri synod lutheran church in beaver falls and i went with my roommates and it was weird i i it was weird like i i wasn't like really impressed. I didn't, I didn't go to that service and think, wow, that liturgy was beautiful. Hmm. Uh, I, it was just different. <laughs> mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and I think I kind of came out of that not knowing really what to think. Was there um, a moment for you then where you said to yourself, this is my movement. This is my calling. These are my people. Uh, that initial sense of what am I doing here to, I belong here. How did, how did you get over that mm-hmm. bridge? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and I think it was theological as well as practical. So I had to just work through the theological arguments. So the first time I went to a Missouri Synod church, I wasn't convinced theologically of where they were at, but that was where I was curious about it. And I said, I want to actually look into this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, uh, for a little bit, I was going back and forth between the two churches. And uh then I was reading. Um, I was reading the Lutheran Confessions, the Book of Concord. Um, I started reading through uh, Francis Pieper's Christian Dogmatics, which is like kind of the standard Missouri Synod Dogmatics textbook. Um, you know, green hardcover volumes, and I I had those right next to my green hardcover Charles Hodge volumes in college, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and I uh, and I actually would I would read Hodge on a section, and then I'd read Pieper's section on the same topic, and I went back and forth between the two and read through both volume, both sets. Um, 
so there, there was a lot of kind of back and forth because I'm like, I want to hear the reformed arguments. I want to hear the Lutheran arguments. And I was going back and forth with, with churches. Um, there, there was one, uh, I, I tell you, there was one moment which wasn't so much the Lutheran church. It was being at the Presbyterian church where all of a sudden I, I, I felt I can't be here anymore. Okay. Okay. What was that? Um, yeah, it was. And, and th this is probably going to sound like I'm, you know, insulting the church and I'm, re I'm really not trying to do that That's all right. at we, all. We can take but, it. Uh, Lay it on us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What did we do wrong uh, this time? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we no, have a long I, history I, of doing it wrong. <laughs> it was a, it, the, the sermon title was the gospel and the pastor was preaching and the cross was not mentioned once in the okay. sermon. Okay. 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 Uh, and, and it was about very much kind of the Lordship of Christ, Christ is King. Um, you know, I'm sure he used that uh, Abraham Kuyper quote that everybody uses. <laughs> you know, there's not one square inch of, of the universe that the Lord Christ did not declare mine, whatever that quote yes. that quote is exactly. Mm -hmm. um, not that I disagree with that quote <laughs> by any means. Um, but it was that moment when I realized that in the Lutheran church that I had been going to, Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins was really at front and center. And, and I think that was the moment that it struck me that I just wasn't getting that centrally within the Reformed tradition. Hmm. And it was at that moment that I, that I said, I, I just don't think I could do this anymore. Hmm. Okay. So how then, how then did you move forward into ordination in the Lutheran church? I'm a little bit interested in that as well. What does it look like to become an ordained Lutheran minister? Specifically, the one question I was thinking about earlier today is how do you, in ordination, approach the confessions of the church? As a Westminster sure. a subscribing Presbyterian here in the PCA, we have a, a whole concept of confessional subscriptionism, where we have to state our exceptions to the Westminster in writing and, uh, yep. if, and if any, defend them before the Presbytery, et cetera. Does... Lutheranism have sort of an analogous process and just take us through um, what or Lutheran ordination looks like. Yeah, sure. So I can give you the the, the process. Um, you know, essentially it, it is generally required that you have a seminary degree uh, and then a Presbyterian sir. You know, my Reformed Baptist friends are very opposed to that <laughs> as a necessity, mm -hmm. but we, we do require, you know, a seminary degree. Um, but once you finish your education, uh, you go before a board that we call we call the clergy commission, which is made up of both pastors and, and laity. So similar to like a Presbyterian examination, you're asked a bunch of questions, uh, questions about your life, questions about your theology. Um, and this also includes filling out a, um, a packet of answers with doctrinal and practical questions. It's, it's pretty extensive. It's a very extensive packet. Uh, and you have to answer then questions based on what you've what you've done in that packet. Um, so it's it's pending then approval of the clergy commission, uh, then you are put on our roster and then you then you're eligible to receive a call. Uh, but in terms of of confessional subscription, um, we don't have room for exceptions. So we are are very strictly confessional. Um, conf those who call themselves confessional Lutherans, uh, which would be those churches within the ILC as well as like the Wisconsin Synod and some smaller groups as well. Um, we don't allow our pastors to teach anything that's not in accord with our confessions. Um, so, so we expect you to vow that you're going to teach according to those texts. Mm -hmm. 
Um, yeah, so so that's something that was different for me uh, coming from, you know, looking into the, the PCA. And I know that, you know, a lot of pastors I knew had had exceptions, especially to the Sabbath or uh, it seems like that was the big one. Um, and images sometimes. of Christ, larger yes. catechism 109 relation to right. depictions of any of the three persons of the Trinity. Those are probably the two biggest exceptions we run into in the PCA. Yeah. And then also, you, you know, the Westminster standards, I mean, have been amended in different, you know, so I know that uh, you know, like in an American context, some things are, are different. Right. Um, there isn't as much flexibility in Lutheran in the Lutheran confessions. I mean, we were like, no. we're done in 1580. We've never added anything to it. And you have to affirm all of this. We're not changing it. And uh, <laughs> we're, we're pretty like rigid, strict about our confessional subscription. Now, just for the sake of clarity here, when you say yeah. your confessions, specifically what documents are we talking about do you include the the creeds of the more ancient church are we simply talking about uh what what do we have that we're subscribing to yeah sure so we start with we have the three ecumenical creeds um which we call the ecumenical creeds so the two of them are really western creeds and the other one is a westernized version of a creed that's the same but but we call them ecumenical creeds and that's the apostles creed the nicene and then the athanasian creed Mm -hmm. um so we confess those three so if you look at a, a book called the book of concord which is a pretty hefty volume which concludes which includes all of our confessions so we start with those three ecumenical creeds uh from there we then have the augsburg confession uh so the augsburg confession is the really the foundational document for for lutheranism mm -hmm. uh, you know presented at the diet of augsburg in, in uh, 1530 so if you really want to get a good idea of what lutherans believe and you want to read something concise the augsburg confession is the best place to go uh, we then have the uh, the catechisms of Martin Luther. He in the 1520s he wrote the small and the large mm -hmm. catechisms. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, kind of similar to what you have with the Westminster uh, shorter and, and larger catechism. Yeah. Um, so in order, and we have other documents, but just before I move on to what those are, all Luther confessional Lutherans hold to at least the the ecumenical creeds, the Augsburg Confession, and the small catechism. Those are kind of our basic documents. Um, so churches that were Lutheran outside of Germany generally had just those documents as their standard. Um, but within the German Lutheran churches, there were other documents that were also accepted as part of our larger confessions. Okay. Um, so you're, you can be a Lutheran if you hold to just those, but mm -hmm. uh, we subscribe to these other documents. So along with those, we have, uh, you know, along with the Augsburg Confession and the catechisms, there is then the apology of the Augsburg Confession, which is a defense of, of the Augsburg Confession written by Philip Melanchthon. Uh, we then have the small called articles, which was a confession that, that Martin Luther wrote at the end of his life. Mm -hmm. um, we have then the treatise on the power and primacy of the Pope, uh, which does confess the papacy as antichrist. And that's still in our confessions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, it, it, Melanchthon wrote, wrote that work. Mm -hmm. And then we have the, later documents and these are written in the 1570s that which are the the formula of concord and then the solid declaration of the formula of concord which is just kind of a more concise version of the same uh, same text um but the formula of concord it's going through you know 11 points of dispute that early lutherans had mm -hmm. so this is further clarification of some of the issues that theologians who subscribe to the oxford confession were were in debate about um and then those were put forth in those documents in the formula of Concord. And so there are no exceptions permitted to any of these things. Is there something like, no. uh, for us, we have what we call the presbytery floor exam, which is the most dreadful moment of the entire ordination process where all of the presbyters 
of the area. They grill us for two or three hours or, or however long it goes uh, publicly. They can ask us anything about the confessions or the Bible, our personal beliefs, church history, whatever. Do you have something like that, the floor exam kind of a moment? Yeah, that's what we have with our clergy commission. So it's expected that okay. you're in there to, you know, a couple hours to sit there and be grilled. Yeah. Now, shifting gears here a little bit, we're going to do something fun in just a moment. If if you're willing to, I thought we'd have you do a little bit of a yo-yo trick. But before we do that, we're going to get back to that in just a moment here. Um, you've written a book in which you looked back on Reformed theology, having come mm -hmm. out of it into Lutheranism. And you set Lutheranism as over against Reformed theology, obviously yeah. arguing for the Lutheran position. What would you say, Jordan, if you could be honest, are some of the strengths of the of the Reformed views? And what then are some of their weaknesses that you critiqued in that book? So obviously there must be some overlap. If there's a Venn diagram between Lutheranism and, and conservative Presbyterianism, we certainly hold a lot in common. What would yeah. you say objectively then are some of our strengths? And then likewise, what would be some of our weaknesses? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, that so that book, The Great Divide uh, was, was the name of that book. And that book was written as really it was just written first as a series of blog posts that I was writing just to get my personal thoughts out as I was wrestling with these issues. Eventually that became essays and then it became a book. I mean, obviously it was highly edited from, from that, but that's how it started. Um, yeah. So looking at it, asking me to give the strengths of the reformed perspective, I would say there are no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, no, I, um, there, there are things, you know, being in the reformed church, there are things that I do miss. I will say, um, I think that the strength of the reformed church is, is that you have a very educated laity theologically. Mm -hmm. Um, and we, within, I don't, I don't think any other tradition, I just don't think you have that same kind of, like in reformed churches, I, I, you know, you talk to lay people and they'd like want to debate various theological points with you. And I've never encountered that to that extent in any other tradition. Um, so, so I do think that the reform probably tend to be more theologically inclined in general. Mm -hmm. um, there maybe could be negative things about that too, but, uh, but I also, I do think that that certainly is, is a strength. I mean, theologically, you know, I would say um, the, the reformed insistence on the authority of scripture um, the the desire to be conformed to scripture in every way possible I, I think is is admirable i certainly you know i don't hold to the regulative principle for example but but i can at least respect the the desire to be as biblical as possible right i, mm -hmm. I certainly have a, a re respect for the reformed in trying to do that um and i think over against a lot of other you know more broadly protestant traditions the reformed tradition does actually have the tradition, you know, it has like an inherited self-conscious tradition. There, there is an, an intentionality of why you do the things you do, uh, an intentionality of historical continuity and, um, you know, confessional subscription. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I think coming from my perspective, it's much easier to have a, you know, a good, healthy dialogue and, and debate, uh, you know, with confessional traditions. Because it's like, I, I like when you, you kind of know where people stand, Yeah, uh, you yeah. know their history, and you, you feel like you can really discuss ideas once you have what you really believe nailed down. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How about some of our weaknesses then? I guess you kind of are identified some earlier when you were talking about your yeah. shift from reform to Lutheran, but go ahead and just let, let us have it here. What are some things that maybe we're not self-aware of, or maybe even some historical debates that you think the Lutherans have the edge 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think Lutherans are right because I wrote a book on it and I mm -hmm. changed my, my views on these things. Uh, I would say, you know, one is historical continuity. Like, I, I, I certainly think the Reformed has more of a sense of historical continuity than than a lot of uh, other Protestant churches. Um, but I'll tell you one thing I really struggled with in terms of continuity was church structure. Hmm. And and I really had to wrestle with this question. Um, and there was a, you know, RP, uh, a RPC and a theologian I, I uh, had a conversation with, and I won't name him, but uh, he told me that if I was going to the Lutheran church, I was living in sin because the Lutheran church was not structured according to the biblical Presbyterian principles and not abiding by the regulative principle of worship. Okay. And, you know, I, I at least he's, you know, blunt about what he believes. That's fine. But uh, if he thinks that's right, that's, that's fine. But that kind of thinking makes me question, well, what do you do with the whole history of the church? Like, I, I think when you're so dogmatic about a particular worship style in a particular church structure, it, that doesn't really show up in, I mean, we have bishops as early as the middle of the second century, and then it becomes pretty much universal within, you know, the next 50 years. So, I mean, I, I just think that you have some difficult historical continuity questions. Um, if, if you're going to take a strict stance and, stay, and say that the Presbyterian system of government is the only valid form of church government or the regulative principle of worship, it's the only valid form of worship. I just think that there are a lot of difficult questions about history that you have to wrestle with. Hmm. Um, so, so that would be one for me. I, I think the, another major question that I wrestled with um, was the sacraments and uh, the reformed view of the sacraments. I, I think that when you read the Westminster confession, in some ways it, it tries to, and I saw this and, you know, I see this still in conversations with, with a lot of the reformed is, you know, you want to have a higher sacramental theology, but then also you have this doctrine of, of election, which I think kind of forces you not to have a, certainly a Lutheran sacramentology because they don't really fit together. Um, and some of this was thinking about the question, why is it that reformed churches, though Calvin's view of, say, the Lord's Supper is, I, I think, a more more of a, of a kind of realist view. Uh, than Zwingli's. Why is it that Zwingli's view kind of wins out, it seems, in practicality? Um, so my conclusion was, I think that there's that Calvin tries to hold in tension some Lutheran ideas and some Zwinglian ideas, and ultimately they don't fit together. Um, so that that was part of it. And, and then ultimately, though, probably the most important thing for me is the issue of, um, of Christ and the atonement. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think limit, limited atonement... Um, is certainly something that I profoundly wrestled with, um, you know, existentially, but but also textually. Um, and, and I think I, I came to the point that in wrestling with the issue of limited atonement, I, I felt like from a Reformed perspective, I was often explaining away the text. Like there's always a way you can explain why the text means what you want it to mean. But but I, I felt like I, I was often trying to kind of squeeze my interpretation into those texts. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so those are, I mean, there are plenty of other things, but those are maybe the kind of chief issues that I really at least wrestled with when I was going through this. How much do you think um, theological cross-pollination is important to us? In other words, so as a Lutheran minister, are you reading Reformed people regularly? Uh, some of the some of the reformers, the the Puritans, uh, even some of the later Princetonian theologians. Are you reading these guys, or do you pretty much stay 
in the in the lane of Lutheran theologians? How 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 much should we be reading from each other's traditions to be helpful? Yeah, I um, I don't only read Lutherans. I certainly don't. Um, I don't even read primarily Lutherans, honestly. Um, uh, but but I read pretty broadly. I, I think it's very helpful to have different perspectives. So I tend to read a lot of Reformed authors. I read a lot of Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic as well. Hmm. Um, I, I just tend to think that it's better for us to see different perspectives on, on various things. And that doesn't mean just in a polemical context. I'm, I'm not saying that just, you know, I, I read the Reformed guys just so I can argue with them. <laughs> so uh, I, I think especially when it, I say my own reading, when it comes to things like biblical theology, I gain a lot from the Reformed. Um, so, you know, Mer- I love Meredith Klein, for example, uh, okay. I've read a lot of Gerhardus Voss. I was going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but Gerhardus Voss largely borrows from Gustav Ehler, who is a Lutheran, German Lutheran theologian. So uh, I think there is a bit of back and forth. Um, I do like the old Princeton guys, especially on scripture. And I don't agree with all of their conclusions, but, uh, on, on some things, I certainly like them. I read a lot of Peter Lightheart. I know he's probably not uh, the most favorite person in the PCA, but, uh, but I really do like Lightheart a lot. Um, I read a lot of Michael Horton who I really like. Um, hmm, cool. So I, I, I don't know from, <clears throat> see from a Lutheran perspective. You'd probably fit in really yeah. well at the White Horse Inn. Have they ever asked you to do anything with them? I, um, I have done some writing of articles for Modern Reformation. Oh, but, that's um, right. You used, yeah, yeah, I used yeah. to, I used to write for Modern Reformation too. That was another connectivity. Yeah. I knew that you had done that. Yeah. 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 Yep. Yeah, yeah. I've, we I've have done all a these little things. parallel tracks, Jordan. You know, sure, yeah, I, I yeah. have to say though, um, you know, having grown up Lutheran, I'm not sure that I ever really experienced what Lutheranism has to offer. For one thing, yeah, I, I left the Lutheran Church true. way too, way too young. Um, I had a saving experience of of Christ in eighth grade. And from that moment on, I almost never went back to Lutheran Church. I will say this though that some of my most profound early experiences with God were of two kinds. First, my parents saying daily uh, evening bedtime prayers with me yeah. every day, just saying my prayers. I just grew up being instructed that there was a God and that we were to pray. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep, et cetera. So I just kind of, I, I was raised in that. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, Jordan, I think you'll appreciate this. Some of my most memorable and very early conversations were with talking with my dear friend, uh, who is now a seminary professor and a college professor at Cornerstone University, about the creeds, which were in the front of our Lutheran hymnal. In fact, I still have my Lutheran hymnal right here on my shelf. And in the front of that hymnal, there are the great creeds of the faith, including the Athanasian Creed. And that one got us talking. I think we were I don't yeah. know, third grade maybe, but we were talking about the Trinity. And so my early formulations of who God is and what he's like came from the Lutheran church. Mm-hmm. During confirmation, we had to learn, you know, the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. And so I was sort of drilled on these catechetical basics. But it being a a, Luther, um, a liberal Lutheran church, part of the yeah. ELCA, I can't say that I ever heard the gospel there even once, which is funny because that's what you said you loved about the Lutheran church as over against your experiences in the PCA. You weren't hearing the cross being preached for for whatever reason. I look back on that experience and I wonder um, with our doctrine of effectual call, if, if I just wasn't hearing it, maybe it was being preached regularly. Yeah. 
But there was something about being removed from the Lutheran context, taken out of this massive, beautiful, beautiful Gothic cathedral and put in a gym um, where somebody preached the gospel to me. And all of a sudden it just totally made sense. Christ pierced my heart and uh, gave me the the faith to repent and to believe. So um, it was a tremendous yeah, I... change for me. And so I looked back on the Lutheran experience and I thought, why didn't you give me Jesus? Where where was the gospel in all of this? I, you told me the Ten Commandments, but you never told me that that I needed Christ as, as a savior. And so for a while, I sort of resented that. I looked back on it as just so much religion. Um, and that the less entrapments of, of religiosity, the better, the less vestments, the less liturgy, et cetera. Now, having matured, I've thought through some of those things again, and I think I have a more balanced and mature perspective on that. But for a while, I really resented it. I felt like I didn't get the gospel in the Lutheran church. So it's interesting that uh, yeah, hearing I... the cross preached is what really, really brought you into Lutheranism. Yeah, I mean that's the ELCA. You know, I think uh, yeah. obviously I don't know the particular pastor or that or that congregation, but um, if if there really was no preaching of the gospel, that certainly wouldn't be a one-off situation in the ELCA. Yeah, um, I I think probably most confessional Lutherans would say that you're you're certainly better off in a PCA church than you are in an ELCA church. You know, mm. I think mm. uh, and. and to be clear, I know some ELCA pastors that are very faithful, you know, men of God and and preach the gospel and somehow survive in the ELCA. And I don't know how they do it, but, um, but that's, well, I that's loved my bad. pastors, you know, I, in my view, you know, being a little kid in elementary school, they must've been 120 yeah. years old. There were these aged saints, very revered yeah. for their character and for their lifestyle, would not fault them uh, a bit in that sense, other than I didn't hear the gospel. And again, it could be because yeah. it wasn't my time or my heart was was dead to hearing it or the spirit had not yet um, effectually worked upon me, but I, I didn't hear it. And so I, I resented them for it. But now I've mm. I've kind of come, sure. come to peace with all that. Well, hey, let's do something fun. Do you want to, will you, Jordan Cooper, this day, will you pull out your yo-yo and prove it to us that you can do this? Because I i didn't believe it at first. I have to be honest. I didn't believe it. I thought you were talking about some basic <laughs> level, uh, simple tricks. And then I saw a couple of videos of you doing this and I'm like, oh my goodness, this guy is the real thing. So so let's let's do this here Got on here, my channel. Yeah. All right. I can do it. I, uh, I'll take my headphones off so I won't be able to hear you, but uh, All right. I'll try to get a good uh, view here of the yo-yo. All right, cool. All right, here he is, everybody. Dr. Jordan Cooper, the one and only, buttoning up the jacket for better dexterity. Wow. Look at that. That is amazing. Just in awe of that. I can't imagine how long he had to practice to be able to develop that. No mistakes either. At least I'm not seeing any mistakes. Don't exactly know what I'm looking for as far as mistakes, but man, that is complex. Wow. What in the world? Wow. Oh, man. That is awesome. 
That is awesome. I cannot believe that. That was so incredibly complicated. I don't know exactly what I was looking at there. I didn't see any mistakes, though. If there were any, I don't know if I would know what I was looking <laughs> for exactly. But that is that is world class, right? I mean, could you enter that into a a world yo-yo competition and win uh, win prizes for that? I mean, that's way more than your beginner amateur type stuff there. That's that's world level, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I uh, I haven't competed in a very long time at this point, but uh, I competed in the world yo-yo contest back in two thousand one. Um, so I, uh, I placed 11th overall when I was there. Um, wow. so I made, I made it to finals and then messed up my, my routine during, <laughs> during finals, oh, but, but Hey, still, uh, made it to, to 11th place. So I, I felt pretty good about that. Um, but that was the only year I ever went. I've won a bunch of contests back in, yeah, 2000, probably, I think my first contest was 99. I was born mm -hmm. in 87. So I was like 12. I mean, I was young. Uh, so um, I did win the mid Atlantic regional contest one, one that was 2001 as well. And that, and that, at the time that was like the biggest contest on the, on the, at least in the Northeast. Um, so that was probably the biggest contest that I, that I won at the time. Um, and I was mentioned in the New York times for it, which was no kind of wild. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, I know this. My uh, I remember my aunt sent me a clip, sent us a clipping of the New York times and, and they, they did some, uh, like in the sports sports section, which is funny because I'm a terrible athlete, but yeah. uh, they had a listing of like winners of all these sports events throughout the year, and, and uh, Mid Atlantic Regional Yo Yo Contest showed up there, so I was I was listed. Now we were joking earlier too about what's cooler, skateboarding or yo yoing, and we'll have to let the viewer decide. But I imagine that in yo yoing, it has this in common with skateboarding that there are probably all these technical names for the tricks. There was oh, yeah. probably some oh, yeah. like kick flip to fakie or some axle grinds there, or is, does oh, yo-yoing yeah. have all kinds of technical terminologies for the maneuvers that you're doing there? Oh, totally. Yeah. 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 There, there are names for everything. And, and some of the names are completely nonsensical. Like, like, like one of the first, uh, maybe more advanced tricks that people learn is called skin the gerbil. Like, I, I feel like okay. a lot of the names are just very bizarre, but, <laughs> but yeah. 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 I don't know if we can say that on this channel. Yeah, sorry if that's uh, yeah. offensive to <laughs> the, the gerb the gerbil enjoyers. I don't know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, listen, um, I don't mean to take up your entire day, but there's two other things I want to talk to you about oh, very, yeah, sure. very quickly. And we'll just do yeah, kind yeah, of no a problem. lightning round here. So let's go back to theological reading here for just a moment. We were talking about cross-pollinization there, reading from other traditions. You know, one thing that I've kind of struggled with in my life is the idea of being a generalist on one hand versus an expert on the other. Yeah. Um, as a person who reads regularly, let's talk some advice to some of the listeners out there. Do you think it's more beneficial for a person to be a generalist and read all kinds of different things from all different strata of life, some, some history, some biblical literature, some biographies, uh, some deep doctrinal stuff, even reading from other doctrinal traditions? Or is there any benefit to really drilling in on one particular doctrine or maybe even a particular... Yeah theologian and becoming a master of their their works and some sort of being able to get your head into somebody else's head what what have you chosen to do in terms of your study how do you decide what to read yeah that's a really good question um and, and i think it depends on the person because i think we're we're all very different uh and people read differently people read different amounts of texts too um i i will say sometimes when i see people wanting to read so broadly and be a generalist it, it's so overwhelming 
right? Yeah. Be- because you you just can't know everything. No. You can't even know everything you kind of need to know. Right. <laughs> and this is this is what I realized going into the field of theology. I'm like, there are so many things that I feel like I need to know to do theology well. There's so many people I need to read, but it's, I mean, it would take you a lifetime to get even anywhere close to, to being able to do that. Uh, so I think recognizing your human limitations is, is helpful. Um, you know, it's, it's much better to, I think, read carefully one, you know, take like Augustine City of God, take some text that's really, or is De Trinitate, you know, really intense text. Um, it's much better to spend your time reading that one book and really mm-hmm. delving in than reading like 10 other theology books quickly. Mm-hmm. You're probably mm-hmm. going to get more out of spending the time with the things that are worth worthwhile. Um, so I do tend to think reading deeply is more important in a lot of ways than reading broadly. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. with that being said, if you are somebody who say is going to go into a scholarly field um, of you know, say you're going to go into biblical studies and you want to specialize in, you know, Paul's doctrine of justification. I use this as an example because sometimes the guys writing on Paul drive me crazy. Uh, because if you're doing that, you got to also know enough historical theology to make sure that you're being accurate when you represent other people, say, interpreting Paul. Mm-hmm. This is just one example. But this is a frustration I have when reading a lot of the debates about the new perspective on Paul is that these guys are so specialized in biblical studies and they're so specialized in, you know, understanding second temple Judaism that they don't, re- they haven't done the work in Luther. They haven't done the work on, well, any, any of the reformers uh, or the patristic sources so that they kind of make these broad sweeping claims. So, so I would say you kind of have to have a balance. Like you, you have to find out what your specialty is and realize what you really want to focus on and become an expert in that thing, but don't be so narrow that you can't speak to other disciplines. Um, because, and I think this is the, this is probably more of a problem between systematics and, and uh, biblical studies and anything else. But I see this really, really consistently between those two disciplines. There's just not, there's not really conversation happening. And I think it's unfortunate and could be, mm-hmm. can be a, mm-hmm. a detriment. So uh, I know my answer is kind of balance, uh, which maybe is not, <laughs> I'm not giving you a very particular uh, answer, but I feel like off, oftentimes balance is going to be the really the answer to those kind of questions. Yeah. For me, um, I've sort of chosen the route of the specialist and focusing in on Jonathan Edwards studies. And um, right. I have got, I think being a generalist is very, very hard. And I respect people who are, you know, in some sense, the MDiv is a generalist degree because it gives you a little bit of everything. It gives you a little bit of Old Testament, a little bit of New Testament, a little bit of theology, a little bit of church history, a little bit of counseling, a little bit of preaching. It is so tremendously broad. And even the work of pastoral ministry is a, is a generalist trade. In some sense, you have to mm-hmm. be good at so many different things. And yet, in terms of my academic career, I can simply say that being a specialist on one particular theologian has led to far more opportunities yeah. to write and to to lecture and to teach on that particular topic because it does make you somewhat different. It gives you some yeah. foot in the door that publishers or, or uh, other theologians, there's a desire there to do some dialogue with that. So that's one benefit to being a a specialist. But then again, I feel so ignorant in so many areas. Like I know nothing about World War II, uh, the Civil War. There's so much history that people refer to. And I just, I, I, 
I feel so sad about my own ignorance in a number of areas. And uh, the sciences too is just another field. I was just talking to another pastor today about how seminary did not equip me to be a counselor as much as I wish I I had skills in counseling. Yep. There's just so many yep. areas of ignorance, but with only one life to live and being a finite individual, uh, sometimes you just have to choose. And so I've just tried to really yeah. bore into Edwards. Hey, I want to let you go yeah. here because I know you have pressing times for other other responsibilities, but let's talk Jordan Peterson here for just a second. The other Dr. Jordan online. I couldn't help but notice a couple months ago that he followed you on Twitter, which I thought was very, very cool. And it led yeah, me to yeah. wonder what happened there that he heard of you. I wonder if he stumbled upon some of your podcasts or some of your YouTube videos. Do you know how it is he came to be aware of what you're doing? Yeah, that is a good question. Uh, that kind of came out of nowhere to me. I was very surprised. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know how aware he is of, of what I'm doing. Um, I will say I did see a a video of him maybe from year or two ago um where he addressed some things about his statement that he made about his whether he believes in god okay and and i do remember watching that and thinking it sounds almost like he's because he's saying some people say this as a criticism i'm like it sounds almost like he watched the, the video i did because it was almost word for word what i had said interesting uh, but, I, okay. but, I, but also i i was like yeah you know it someone else very well could have said the same thing. So I, I don't, I didn't know that that was, that that was the case. It wasn't I unique I, enough that it had to be from you, right. but, but he found you somehow. I'm looking at his Twitter right now. Yeah, yeah. He's got 3.5 million followers, but he only follows 579 people. So that's a pretty yes. narrow, that's a pretty narrow follower list there. And you're one of those people. I found that was interesting. I've noticed you've so, tried to tweet him a couple times. Has he responded to anything that you've said yet? Well, I so I will say I, I think probably my conversation with Jonathan Pajot was it, it. I mean, he certainly at least knew me from that because Pajot oh, was you know okay a good friend of his. So I, I yeah probably yeah. Um, but I also know that he is known to kind of look up what people are saying about him on YouTube. <laughs> so okay, and, and and I probably so so I, I assume that he maybe counted me that way too. But uh, I. So I know I've tweeted at him. Uh, I haven't gotten a response publicly. I sent him a. I sent him a direct message once and he's, he, he did respond to oh, Lee and cool. Um, but, uh, so, so he knows who I am. Um, but you know, I, I'm not going to be, uh, I, I don't want to be one of those like annoying people. That's like sending him DMS all the time. Like, please respond. No to way. Me. Nope. <laughs> I'm not going to nope. do that. <laughs> I wouldn't do that either, man. Yeah. No, I no. So I, yeah, what do you yeah. think so is I, I, Do you have, you have any opinions on what he's doing? Yeah. Um, I, so to be honest, most of my knowledge of Peterson uh, and interest in him does come from like a lot of the ministry that I've done with people who are very influenced by him. Mm -hmm. um, so it really is largely the impact that he's had on young men, because a lot of my ministry, college students, young, young male college students who are very impacted by him. Uh, and I've seen him try really get people to start taking the Bible seriously uh, in some ways who didn't take the Bible seriously before. Mm -hmm. So my, my experience in, you know, say watching his videos is largely in, you know, contexts that are more apologetic, like the like things that he said that I know that people are watching that, uh, have led them to ask questions about God. So mm -hmm. I, I can't say, you know, I watch his podcast every week or listen to his podcast every week or, you know, read everything he writes, you know, I, I, I don't, but 
but there are certain things that I've been very interested in that that he said, and and largely that's driven by what people point me to. You know, more mm-hmm. like I saw this interesting thing. You should watch this. Yeah, kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. I love his stuff on responsibility. I find his stuff on personality yeah. types very interesting because again, that's kind of a weakness for me psychology in general. I would say that I think his weakest content is actually his biblical teaching content. I'm not really impressed by uh, necessarily some of his his perspectives on interpreting scripture. I think they're almost entirely influenced by psychology rather than any sort of informed biblical theology or anything like that. But I do have hopes that uh, he seems to be driven to or drawn to the scriptures. And I do hope that the Lord is working in his life savingly and will, if he has not already brought him to, to faith. Yeah. I I think he would, I think he would acknowledge as much in terms of his biblical content. I mean, he really is giving a kind of psychological interpretation and I, I, I don't think he's, I don't think he's pretending to be a theologian in doing those talks. Yeah. But I just have a little bit of concern of people that love his other stuff, some of his motivation yeah, yeah. and responsibility stuff getting drawn into the biblical teaching and thinking that sure. these are these are lectures of first importance when it comes to interpreting Genesis or Exodus or something sure. like that. Yeah. Yeah. And that very well may be the case. To be honest, I haven't encountered that in my own interaction um with with people. Um what I've I, a lot of people have I think it's because of the similarity of our names. There are people who have looked up, accidentally looked up my name and found my videos because they were looking for Jordan Peterson videos. Right, right. And I get these emails every once in a while with people telling me that. Uh, <laughs> just, just have a weird coincidence. Dr. Jordan, you both have Dr. Jordan in your Twitter. But, but it's the B as well. So it's yeah. the, we have the same middle initial. So, um, oh, okay. Yeah. 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 So that that's why I, I mean, I get constantly get emails of somebody, people calling me Dr. Peterson, which is funny. Um, but but I, it's been pretty consistent that I've encountered people who have said to me, you know, I watched Peterson stuff on scripture and then I decided I wanted to really get in depth with scripture and started looking for other resources. So so I have seen, and this may just be my experience, like I, I haven't seen a lot of kind of, you know, maybe evangelicals going toward like, well, I'm going to look at his interpretive methods. I've more seen people who weren't really interested in the Bible starting with him and saying, oh, this guy takes the Bible seriously. Let me look more into this and then finding theological resources. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the channel today. It was an uh, amazing opportunity to get to talk to you in real life, I suppose, as real as a Zoom conference call can be. But thanks for taking the time to be with us today. I just want to remind everybody that uh, Dr. Jordan Cooper has a great YouTube channel as well as a, a very informative podcast called Justin Sinner. You can find that on pretty much any podcasting app. Just look up his name or look up Just uh, Justin Sinner. Also, don't forget about his new book. It's called In Defense of the True, the Good, and the Beautiful on the Loss of Transcendence and the Decline of the West. We didn't even really get to talk about uh, Revere Franklin Widener at all today, and I was going to ask you about that. So that only means, Jordan, that you're going to have to come on again sometime, and we're going to do part two on a later occasion. Would you be willing to come back on the channel again sometime in the future? Sure, that sounds good. We can do some 19th century American Lutheran theologians, Uh, Yeah, which actually could be be fun because Widener had a relationship with Charles Hodge. Oh. uh, And... uh, and he, Widener was a bit younger, but they had written back and forth at one point. That, is, that is so cool. We're, we're definitely going to have to uh, to do that yeah. again. Maybe we'll call these the Marburg Colloquies or something like that. And every once in a while, I'll, I'll have you come on and we'll have some ref- Reformed and Lutheran dialogue together. That would be, that would be great. That sounds good. 
you have anything you want to promote on the way out the door? Uh, you can check out my website, justincenter.org. If you want to see, you know, all of the books and all sorts of things that we do, um, but you can pretty much find everything there. All right, great. And I just want to remind everybody once again that my new book, Souls, How Jesus Saves Sinners, right here is available in paperback and on Audible. All right, thanks for checking in, everybody. Love you lots, and we'll talk to you later.